Welcome to episode two of the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Our guest today is Wilfred Riley, Associate Professor of Political Science at Kentucky State University. He holds a PhD in political science from Southern Illinois University and a law degree from the University of Illinois. Dr. Riley has so far published two books, Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, published in 2020, and Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War, published in 2019. He is a prolific public intellectual, writing articles for Newsweek, Commentary, Tablet Magazine, Quillette, and provides a daily dose of political commentary on his Twitter feed, which is not only smart, but also very entertaining. Highly recommended. Wilfred Riley joins us today to talk about the ideas and works of Thomas Sowell. Wilfred Riley, welcome to the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Great to be on. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit about your experience with Thomas Sowell and his work and when you discovered him and what you read first and what you've read since and how it's affected your scholarship. Yeah, so Thomas Sowell, I mean, I, I encountered Thomas Sowell very early on. Um, as a young man, I was, to some extent, an autodidact. I was, I was self-taught. My mom was an inner-city school teacher. So, I mean, she did a number of other jobs over the years, ranging from secretarial to executive work. But she wound up teaching first in Chicago and then in uh, School District 131 in Aurora, East Aurora. That's the second largest city in Illinois. And the schools, while you know working class, were, were fairly functional. But I did a lot of my own reading to supplement that. And I'm really grateful for that today because I didn't have the idea that you often see in the American upper middle class that certain things are just absolutely off limits and are wrong think that can't be discussed. So just buying books from bookstores and thrift shops and borrowing them from girlfriends, dads and so on. I mean, I read some things that would probably be considered, quote unquote, alt-right today from uh, Pat Buchanan a bit to the right. Uh, and then I read some things that would be considered crazy black radicalism, like a lot of what Third World Press wrote. And in, in all honesty, I found some truth in both of those sets of ideas, although neither is obviously my philosophy today. I, I don't think there are any wrong or evil ideas unless you're getting into actual violence against people or something like that. Although many ideas on the extreme right and left are clearly wrong or empirically not true. But um, one of the philosophers or one of the writers that kept popping up, you know, across the bookstores in the city of Chicago and across the collections, actually, of most of the people I intellectually respected was the OG Tom Sowell. Um, and I mean, a couple of his books stand out, though. The first that comes to mind is The Vision of the Anointed, because it made two points that stick with me today. The first is that basic empirical analysis that you you probably would need a couple years of high school or collegiate training to do, but that you don't need STATA and graduate regression models to conduct, completely demolishes many of the major claims on the left and more than a few on the edge right. Um, and this, this is absolutely something that's very valuable to remember. The way he phrased it, I think, is that most data that you see in the media and at least half of what you see in typical social science journals is univariate. So it's just people looking at the connection between two things and then uh, assuming something, generally racism. So, for example, black men are more likely to go to prison than white men. Um, we have the gap is actually close substantially, but we have slightly lower earnings. I mean, you can, you can go on and on with this sort of thing. For that matter, on the positive side, we're more likely to play sports and to do well in that arena. One thing Tom Sowell would point out, it has pointed out, is that the most common age for a white guy, I believe he's the first person to say this, is 58. The most common age for a black guy is 27. Now, the, the mean and median averages are a little closer together than that. But if you're, if you're looking at any of those three variables, it's absolutely relevant that you're talking about, say, a 35-year-old guy and a 52-year-old guy. I mean, it, it's just foolish to deny this. So that, that that's one of his key points that always stuck with me without necessarily needing a graduate background in regression. If you're looking at gaps, although I have one, but if we're looking at gaps between two or three groups, adjusting for age, region of residence, family structure, test scores, crime rate, probably those five will close virtually any other gap down to almost nothing 
without needing to resort to claims of hidden racism or differences in genetics. The other two paradigms on this, by the way, are CRT, critical theory, and HBD, human diversity, um, are almost just riders on what Thomas Sowell said, in my opinion. So what, what those guys are really doing is looking at the paper and saying, well, a small percentage of that difference in family structure could be due to, you know, thing X and thing Y. Okay, we can debate that too. But the simple reality is that adjusting for these four or five things equalizes most humans. Now, if if the claim is that, you know, group A, Irish people until recently is trailing against some metric, we can certainly ask, is that due to the past? We can certainly try to repair that for them. But the the fact itself remains factual. It remains real. When you look at incomes, for example, I think this is this is a very important point. The average income for a black household today is $44,000. For a white household, it's $65,000. And this in the mainstream empirical literature, even today, is almost invariably attributed to racism. You know, the subtle, hard to find legacy of the clash between our great population groups, which must still be reflected in the structure. The simple reality is that the average white household has almost one more person in it than the average black household. I mean, our single motherhood rate is 72 percent. So when you say you guys make two thirds as much money and have two thirds as many people, it sometimes really is that simple. That doesn't excuse racism at the level of ugly individual confrontations or it's a little harder to rent. But closing that gap would have a much greater effect on income than anything brought up by the racism people, the genetics people, anything along those lines. Black African and West Indian groups that just don't have this problem make as much money as white people do. Um, that, that's it. That's that. So that's one point I took from Tom Saul. The second in the vision of the anointed is this idea of the anointed, which is something as an upper middle class person under 40, you see constantly. There is a relatively small group of people, uh, almost all urban, big city, coastal, went to kind of what I think of as big 10 on up schools, you know, Illinois and Michigan there at the beginning, but also Harvard, Yale, Claremont colleges, so on. Um, Mostly white, although that doesn't really matter all upper middle to low upper class. These are the people at the New York Times. These are the people at MSNBC. These are probably most people at Fox for that matter. But these are the people that feel they should be guiding the country forward. And Seoul really identified this class and defined it and talked about how this certain group of people came to control media, the NGO sector, uh, education, And I I think this is something absolutely relevant to remember. So one, this group is there. Like when you read the Times or the Post, you're getting the perspective of a certain small percentage of the U.S. population. You're not even getting the perspective of the elite in Louisville or Cincinnati or downtown Indianapolis, for that matter. It's a very, very narrow slice of the population. And two, they're often wrong. This ties directly into what we've been seeing over the past year with the failure of experts over and over again uh, journalists, epidemiologists, political leaders, you know, Biden's young wonder kind apparatchiks, you know, evacuating the military first before the civilians, just on and on it goes. Now, one of the points he makes is that the the overall body of knowledge within the smart portion of the general population is almost always greater than the overall body of knowledge within the selected would-be elite. There are very few people that by themselves or even in a group of, say, 10 or 12 in a newsroom or a writer's room have more accurate, correct information than all of the general practice doctors, veterinarians, National Guard officers, respected local lawyers, judges, housewives and so on, even in the relatively small community they live in. Mm-hmm. So things that allow the people to speak uh, an edited letters to the editor column a referendum, a town meeting, they still do this so well in New England, those almost invariably, and this has been studied very specifically, I believe Snyderman and Carmines have written about some of this in political science, almost always produce better decision-making processes than these sort of top-down elite decisions. I don't think anyone at this point thinks that they're getting a better perspective on the USA from the Daily Beast than from a conversation on a golf course with a bunch of smart, regular people. And there's a reason for that that's been outlined by Sol and by others. 
Yeah, I mean, you're you're really you're bringing up when when people ask me, you know, what books of souls do you recommend? I always say Knowledge and Decisions and Intellectuals in Society. I think those are by far his most important works in a way because they get at exactly that point, which is where is the knowledge in a society? Where does it really reside? And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think for Sowell, you know, only maybe 10% of the useful knowledge in a society is with the elites or the intellectuals, as he would call them. Mm-hmm. And the, the other 90% is widely distributed among the population. And the other thing, the other point he makes in intellectuals and society is that the intellectuals often get it wrong precisely mm-hmm. because they are professional intellectuals who are selling the product called ideas. And you know, their sales don't depend on how well their ideas work. They depend on how other intellectuals like their ideas. Yeah, I think that there are three problems. So first of all, I don't necessarily like the American habit of saying, well, a lot of experts now, buddy. You know, I mean, I, for example, when I mentioned regression modeling, I actually, in my academic articles, do professional linear logistics on regression. That's an actual skill. That we, and there are people that are much better than me. I mean, I stop at maybe time series or log land. I mean, there are people that can make computers do magical stuff and print out whole pages full of charts and graphs. You need, you know, two interpreters to get through. But the point is that that actually is a skill. If I conduct this analysis and I say the impact of something on something else, the coefficient of 0.32, Someone would have to have that same level of training in order to disagree with me. You couldn't just point at it and say, looks pretty unreliable, professor. You know, so it, there are there are many discipline-specific skills. Uh, practicing surgery, I imagine, would be one of these. Landing a plane, so on down the line. So I, I think there are roles for experts. However, there are three or four hmm. consistent problems that our intellectual class has. One of them, I think, is that they are very often talking about things that don't require discipline-specific skills. Um, it would be very difficult to think of what specific training you would need to do most of the writing in the humanities or the non-quantitative social sciences. I mean, I suppose you need to be familiar with the literature, but if you were, say, an army officer that had read that literature and then went to the hood as a coach and you were writing about your neighborhood, I don't see any sense in which that wouldn't be, quote unquote, social science. So one of the things that we tend to do is glorify things that require no training. Um, But I I think further, when we go beyond that, that was my own addition. There are three pretty consistent problems with intellectuals as a class. One is just obvious bias. So, I mean, there there are multiple major studies of American journalists and academics that find that about 93% of them are on the fairly hard political left. So, I mean, Pew in 2004... Uh, They found that exact figure, 93% of national media journalists were either leftists, liberals, or moderates with most of the moderates leaning left. They then followed up with questions about affirmative action, abortion, so on down the line. Um, The Econ Live Journal did the same thing with academics and found a very similar percentage. As I recall, almost none identified as conservatives. It was zero out of 108 in sociology. But um, 20% of them identified as leftists. I think 26%, this is the social sciences, identified as radicals, and 18% identified as Marxists. And those were all separate questions. So, I mean, if you, as I recall, if you were a communist or a Marxist, you weren't just a radical. So, I mean, you, you keep finding this every time we look at these fields. Mm-hmm. And that obviously radically influences the kind of thought work that's produced. And it's worth asking, when people, when people try to defend that and say, well, you can't necessarily prove that, first of all, people have, but... It's worth asking, how would people on the mainstream center left treat social science or the grievance studies disciplines if these were 93 percent dominated by people on the right and they kept producing non-replicable papers defending colonialism or saying that women just adore being housewives? I mean, it's it's very easy to imagine the exact alternative. In fact, the two things I just said are much more realistic than a, a lot of a lot of the work we see. So that's problem one. Problem two, I think, would be sort of performative standards. So, I mean, we've we've existed in the era of affirmative action and more relaxed college admissions now for about 30 or 40 years. So when people identify as experts, and I think this ties into point one about discipline-specific skill, but if you say, I am an expert elementary educator or institutional principal, 
social worker outside of, you know, the in-practice useful work in the field. Uh, just so on down the list, um, you know, women's studies professor, analyst. What is the actual level of IQ connected to that? And what are the expertise skills that you have? Um, so those those two points, bias and knowledge, IQ, are pretty relevant when we look at who our experts are. There's also a final one-sentence point. Do they, have to, do they have to actually test any of this stuff? And that's why I think most people would trust what a, a homicide detective said about crime over, you know, a writer from the far left in criminal justice or something like that. Okay, well, speaking of, you know, you mentioned affirmative action. I have a clip here from okay. Thomas Sowell. Uh, talking about this affirmative action. Let me play this real quick. This is from 1981. Would it be your feeling that if all the affirmative action programs were discontinued, women and minorities would go ahead much faster than they have under the affirmative action program? Yes, the, the, it's, not my, it's not my opinion. Uh, the data indicate that, for example, Puerto Ricans had a higher percentage of national average income before quotas than after. So did Mexican-Americans. Blacks are about the same. So there's, again, there's a marvelous putting of the burden on other people. You'll say, here's this, mag this massive program that has existed now for a decade, and you're, not, and you're unable to show me the benefits that have come from all this enormous controversy. Well, it certainly has been a revolution insofar as women's participation in the labor force. Not really. Not really. No, it hasn't. No, I it hasn't. I know that of my own knowledge. No, you don't know it of your own knowledge because I've also looked at the same thing. And in the past, you found women overrepresented in many professional occupations, much more so than today. And you find that decline in those occupations much more highly correlated with a lower age of marriage for college women and with more childbearing. And as those two things, those two demographic factors have changed, women have also changed in their representation. So uh, there's this whole myth that's been created that this is all a function of political developments of the past uh, decade or so, just will not stand up. So what, explain to our listeners what you think is really going on in this uh, clip here, because it's, it's a little bit complicated. From, you know, Sowell's response clearly contradicts his opponent in this debate. But what is he really saying here? I think this is another example of this point that most things are multivariate and many differences that are attributed to trendy things, racism, vanish almost immediately if you just adjust for anything else. So uh, what the OG is saying there is that the, the claim being made is what the, what it always is, right? The, it was the relaxation in racism, the increase in feminism among women and men, affirmative action specifically is the focus here, that brought women into the workforce. And what Sol is saying is, no, the thing keeping women out of the workforce traditionally had been an early age of marriage. And as you saw social attitudes change, that might be the one contribution of feminism. And as you also saw, frankly, labor-saving devices and sexuality become more relaxed in the 70s and so on, you saw women marrying later, and so you saw more women moving into the workforce. Now, I would actually say that there's probably a role of both variables, but obviously the bigger one is that women are now 25 unmarried with degrees. Because if women in the past at 25 were married with no degree, those people would not have been available to become you know, much vaunted female executives. So th this is what we find in almost every one of these situations. I mean, I've given the example of the, the race income gap closes entirely if you adjust for, you know, age, region, you know, any aptitude test score, family structure, maybe years of work experience. Again, younger people have fewer of those. Mm -hmm. And you, you find this just across the board. I mean, I, I'm less of an expert, if that's a term to use at all, when it comes to men and women. But I mean, at least in terms of statistical number crunching. But I mean, when you look at the gender pay gap, my understanding is that that's about 2%. If you make some very basic adjustments for are women working at all? Uh, it truly baffled me in terms of just the level of dishonesty involved. The first time I debated someone on the feminist left who said, well, women make 59 cents to the man's dollar. And I said, working women, right? And th this went off into some detours and it turned out the answer was no. Just adjusting for working moves it up to 78, 79 cents to the dollar. And then are they working in the same job? Are they working the same number of hours for the same number of years? The only even possible form of sexism here, I mean, if we're talking about would a smart, attractive female executive, and those characteristics would also matter for a man, but who's much less likely to encounter problems like arrest that a man would, 
are they going to actually have a tougher time in, say, advertising, marketing law than a guy would with all else equal? I, I don't think anyone really believes that. The only way sexism comes into play is that women are expected to do more domestic labor. And that that's something we can at least talk about in modern relationships with professional women, fair enough. But the initial claim that the same woman is paid 50 cents or 60 cents to the dollar for what the same man is doing, that's just nonsensical. And that's the point Sol's making here, that you can't say what effect affirmative action has had until you adjust for you know, the positive impacts of feminism, until you adjust, but beyond that by far, until you adjust for later age of marriage, later age of childbearing. That's always the case. So what she was saying was that affirmative action has improved the situation of minorities and women. And what he was saying is that those improvements came through many other social factors and not through the, the policy of affirmative action. Is that is that your understanding of it? Yeah. Tom Sowell wrote an entire book about this, actually, called Civil Rights, Rhetoric or Reality, where and just to just to not besmirch his name, I mean, he obviously is doesn't oppose Brown versus Board of Education or anything like that. Soul was never the rock-ribbed, quote-unquote, black conservative he's sometimes presented as. But he, he makes the practical point. I mean, we have to look at this logically as well as ethically. Of course, we all support everyone's right to vote. But when you look at black earnings in the USA, as black business developed under segregation, then as integration began, then as people, working class men, black and white, started flooding into the schools after World War II because of the GI Bill, we saw the black-white income gap dramatically close between, say, 1920, before the Harlem Renaissance, and 1960. All this was before the Civil Rights Act. Right. Um, if you're talking about same size families, I believe the black income moved from something like 36 to 70 to 80 percent of the white income. I could be off by a few points. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's where it is today, although you have to adjust for household size now. So his question was, what prompted this gain in incomes, this gain in wealth? before civil rights. Right. No one likes racism, but when you just use racism as a default explanation for almost everything, you're doing the listening audience a disservice. At some level, we all know this isn't true. And I mean, I'll say as a black businessman, I mean, what improved black incomes prior to modern civil rights was I mean, fathers taking care of their children. The black quote unquote illegitimacy rate dropped from about 25% after slavery to something unbelievable like 9% by the end of World War II. It was people going to school alongside the, the white there's an airmen they had served with. Great black colleges, also most white colleges were integrated by this point. The competent decisions in the real estate market. It was very specific things. Racism certainly had an effect. I mean, that 20% whatever gap in incomes didn't just appear when you're talking about two parent families on both sides. But you can't just say, well, the civil rights movement did all this. In fact, we've seen the gap between black and white incomes close more slowly after the civil rights movement, which also, frankly, included a lot of negative stuff, the development of welfare policy and so on, than we have before. Doesn't mean racism is good. It does mean you can't only fight racism and just ignore the impacts of fatherlessness, bad purchasing decisions, a dozen other things. It's perfectly valid to talk about all of those things. And in private, most people, black and white, do. Sol just wrote books about it with extremely eloquent ones. Now, I mean, one of the things that I love about Thomas Sowell is that he has this ability to reframe a subject in a way that you that most people never thought about before. And to really make you go, huh, I never thought about that. Let, let me give you an example, and then I'll play a clip. He talks about, like, lately we've been talking a lot about the history of slavery and the consequences of slavery. And there seems to be this general belief that slavery was a race-based phenomenon, that it was purely racism, yeah. racial. And Thomas Sowell in, in Black Rednecks and White Liberals wrote a chapter called The Real History of Slavery. And in that discussion, he presents a history of slavery such that slavery was present all over the world for thousands of years. And if anything, Western society like Britain and America should be given the credit for eliminating slavery instead of being criticized for inheriting it. So that's sort of, a, I think, a very paradigm-shifting viewpoint. 
Let me let me play a, a, a little clip on that. And I'd love I'd love to hear your comment about this issue of you know race and slavery. So here goes. Race wasn't the basis of slavery. Oh, it's a simple historical matter. Uh, slavery existed for thousands of years, as far back as there are any records of human beings. Uh, archaeological finds suggest that race, race, that slavery rather existed before human beings could read and write. So. What race, a racial difference between the slaves and the enslavers, that is a relatively new phenomenon. You, you didn't have in ancient times the ability to go to another continent and move millions of people across, of a different race across the ocean. So you enslaved the people who were nearby. The Europeans enslaved Slavs for centuries before they, enslaved, before they brought the first black uh, African to the Western Hemisphere. Okay, but so you're not suggesting you do not wish to say anything other than that slavery as practiced in the United States was, it may have been recent, but you'd argue, you'd be willing to grant that it was particularly perverse and, and, and destructive no, it's, because, it's, because race got mixed into it at that point, right? Race got mixed into it in the United States more than anywhere else for a very simple reason. The United States was founded, as the Declaration said, uh, of the independence, said uh, men are, all men are created equal. Right. If that's true, then the only way you can justify slavery is to say that some men are less than men. I see. So the racial but in, but, in, but in Brazil, where where Brazil imported more slaves than the United States, there was no such ideology. Brazil was not a democratic country. The whole issue never arose. I see. I see. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty much accurate. I mean, there's an old quote. I think it's from the Orthodox Christian tradition that you're probably a good person if you worry about your soul. Because if you were actually just a wolf in a suit, you wouldn't worry about whether or not you were good. Hmm. Uh, I don't pretend to be an extraordinarily good person. I don't spend a lot of time sitting around wondering if I'm a nice guy or something like that. But I, I've always, that always struck me as beautiful and moving. It's the same thing here to some extent. I mean, of course, slavery existed around the entire world for virtually all of history. I actually, I mean, American slavery, and more specifically, South American slavery was more brutal than most instances of the practice. I don't I don't want to give the founders of our civilization a pass, although many of the Spaniards, Portuguesas, Iroquois Braves, and so on involved in this were people of color by our standards awkwardly. But um, the actual practice of slavery itself was universal for human beings. In fact, I mean, for reader, for uh, watchers that don't know anything about this, I would uh, Google or look up Barbary slave trade. The Barbary slave trade was a trade in white slaves who were very valuable as sex slaves, uh, for certain kitchen responsibilities, for example, but conducted almost entirely among Muslim and black masters. I think the closest to white you would get in that trade route would be uh, the Moors, perhaps, in the region that we'd not think of as modern-day Morocco. But we actually, the uh, Barbary slave trade became so widespread that it is cited in the Marine Corps hymn in the United States. To the shores of Tripoli, we actually fought the Barbary pirates and won a sort of sharp little war with them because the, these fellows who, again, were Arab or black, as close as we could get in our terms, were kidnapping so many of our sailors. They would just stop ships, knock everyone on the ship over the head, and take them to a slave market. So it, it, in this, this trade was responsible for the transshipment of about two to four million whites into North Africa, down to some of the West African kings, and certainly among the various Moorish, Algerian, et cetera, city-states. So that, that's a thing that existed that's been almost forgotten because it doesn't forget, doesn't fit anyone's narrative. If you're a hard right white guy who might move to, toward the, the supremacist direction, you probably don't want to think, well, hell, this went on for hundreds of years and no one stopped that. And if you're a black guy who's demanding certain benefits based on your unique victim status, it, it doesn't help you that this also went on. Um, it's worth noting that the word for slave, Slav, refers to a specific white ethnic group. Um, between other Europeans and Muslim, often dark-skinned warriors, that turbulent region of Europe where today's Bosnia, Serbia, Kosovo, and so on are found, Georgia, was one of the most common slave trading zones for the entire world. So in the West, the word slave is simply an insulting, non-capitalized diminutive of the name of one of the population groups. On the other hand, in uh, Arabia and West Africa, the word for slave is abid, which means penniless black man would be the simplest way to put it, black person, black non-religious believer. 
So slavery, in fact, has existed for so long that the terms of two of the world's great races are where the words for slave came from. And I would assume that there's something very similar in Asia, probably, where the Mongols had that distinction between sort of riders and then all other Asians on peasants and so on. So, yeah, slavery, absolutely universal around the world. Um, in the USA, we did justify it in racial terms. But that's simply because if you look at Christian doctrines or the way the Constitution was written, we ethically weren't supposed to have it at all. Unfortunately, that did produce a tradition of racism, some of which lingers until this day. However, it also, this initial baseline reluctance, made it easier for us to get rid of slavery in the first place. The, the argument that the West was the first to abolish slavery among the great civilizations, uh, Near East, Middle East, um, Eastern Europe with serfdom, Deep East Asia, Latin America, I don't, I don't really think that can be practically challenged. Uh, Britain, France, and so on all did so before we did. In contrast, the great powers in the POC world, uh, Brazil didn't do, didn't do this until the 1890s. Uh, Nigeria, Ghana, if I recall correctly, had slavery until the 1950s. And South Africa, I mean, the conflict between blacks and whites there produced a, a system of near slavery for much of the country until 1990s. Um, so yes, the, much of that is just undisputed. One final line about this, I do notice a tendency today, especially on the part of black Americans, to take things that were human universals and present them as bad things that only happen to black Americans. Mm. Uh, an example of this would be whipping. I've had students and mentees react to seeing this in the mov movies like Robin Hood with the question, well, how could that happen? Why are they whipping a white man? Well, because whipping was the universal penalty, essentially for poor men, people who couldn't afford the gentleman's cane or the headsman's axe until quite recently. I mean, this sort of corporal punishment went on into the past century. Uh, the same thing with, with the hangman's noose. I mean, the idea that, is that this represents lynching now to most young people in America. Not really. Hanging was the punishment used for pirates, used for bandits and go-din, so on again, until perhaps 100 years ago. Right. Even lynchings were not universally or in many states primarily of black people. The whole idea in the cowboy films of a posse coming with a rope is an illustration of how this worked. And I mean, if you're in zones, whether that's the deep south or the wild west that had very little law, where you have terms like the one judge west of the Pecos, the way you would deal with, say, a rapist or a thief or a falsely accused one in the case of many black and poor white men, but it's just to round up a bunch of guys, get a rope and an axe and kill them. You can disapprove of that, but presenting that as a particularly American, particularly racialized thing is not accurate, certainly outside the bounds of, you know, the past century or so in one region of this country. So that, that's worth keeping in mind. So, you know, speaking of that uh, distinction, you know, a lot of times when I hear people say, oh, there's still racism in America, to me, it it rings like as if you were to say there's still gravity in America because there's gravity everywhere and there's racism everywhere in every country in all parts of the world. But people seem to focus on that the existence in America as being very distinctive. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah, I think that's because America, for all our flaws, is viewed when foreign revolutions occur, they don't carry a Russian flag. I mean, we've seen this in Hong Kong. We've seen this in Afghanistan as people Cuba. prepare for resistance against the Taliban. No, I, I personally feel we came close to betraying both of those regions. But I mean, the USA is, for all our flaws, correctly considered to be an honorable, democratic powerhouse state. So in the USA, the idea is that per our ideals, we shouldn't have racism, tribalism, so on down the line. So any evidence of this is evidence that we've failed in the minds of radicals who mostly hate the country anyway, so on down the line. And you can accept this is true and try to eliminate that residual racism. But your point's absolutely valid. We need to understand, or the student radicals saying this need to understand, because you and I do, that the USA is one of the seven or eight least racist countries in the world, along with other successfully integrated states like Costa Rica, New Zealand, Britain, so on down the line. Um, if you mean something specific by racism, you're going to find the most of it either in monoracial states that don't want anyone else coming in. Um, I mean, I think you would find fairly high levels of prejudice in both Finland and Botswana, although they're perfectly great places to visit. Um, or in states where people, India, for example, people are living cheek to jowl, but don't much like each other. 
Uh, I would I would assume Palestine and Israel have some of the highest measured levels of racism, anti-Semitism, anti-Islamic feelings on in the world. But we have some of the lowest levels of those things in the world. Yeah, that absolutely needs to be recognized. You can't fairly compare the USA only to heaven. This is an important point. When people say, you know, America for all its glory and power still had 7,000 hate crimes last year, we have 350 million people. The question is how we're doing against the rest of the world, not against utopia or ideals that exist only in your mind. I have another, I have a quote from Thomas Sowell that I'd like to share with you while I read it. If you have always believed that everyone should play by the same rules and be judged by the same standards, That would have gotten you labeled a radical 60 years ago, a liberal 30 years ago, and a racist today. End quote, Thomas Sowell. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty much empirically, testably accurate. I mean, you just saw the University of California system. And again, when I cite things like this, they're generally pretty major examples, not one-off outliers of crazy professors. And so I mean, that's 26 institutions, but totally abandoned testing because their argument was that any form of standardized intelligence testing is going to be racist against blacks and Latinos. Now, leaving aside how racist that itself is, it's also an illustration of this exact point. If you said what I favor when it comes to college is perhaps a bit of class-based affirmative action, but beyond that, a scoring system based on grades and test scores, That's it. Varsity athletes get a 3% boost. This is what I would support probably for a large number of at least selective admissions programs. Uh, But if you were to say that, yeah, people would immediately accuse you of racism because you are directing black people to subject themselves to these racist, horrific tests. One of the elephants in the room here, of course, is that standardized testing isn't racist at all. Um, The most challenging portion of specifically the SAT or the GRE is just a math test. Um, No, I I personally think ancient Egyptians were dark-skinned Caucasians, so I won't say black people invented math, but that is the popular belief in much of the USA, and it doesn't make a large amount of sense to say that we can't do it now, 3,000 years later. I mean, this is just nonsense. The highest scores on these exams almost invariably come from East Asians, South Asians, West Africans, Jews, the usual suspects. They They don't have much to do with Anglo whiteness at all. But nonetheless, the nonsensical claim is made because it provides an excuse as to why board scores are low. And if you ask, why can't they be high or why don't we count them anyway, then you're a bigot. So yeah, one of the, Soul has made this point kind of last sentence here, but has made it um, over and over. And is one of the few people to really make it that the definite, well, it, I'll actually simplify this. The definition of racism has changed extraordinarily radically from what it has always meant everywhere And I think that this is a source of massive confusion to people that haven't read Kendi, D'Angelo, sort of the new philosophers of the left. Racism traditionally has meant disliking people for genetic reasons and so treating them differently. I may be commingling racism and discrimination, but everyone knows that that is what a racist was. If you, black or white, said, you know, my uncle Bill is a bit of a racist, that's what you meant. He doesn't like blacks or Polish people or Hispanics, whites, if you're black or Mexican. And so he treats them badly. It has never meant anything else in any society whose literature I've studied. What people are now trying to do is claim that racism means you support ideas that will not produce absolute equality among ethnic groups. The problem with this is that ethnic groups don't perform equally. I don't really think any of this, at least any significant degree, is genetic, but it is a reality. If you look at scores on the SAT, Asians finish first, which, by the way, the woke people have some real trouble with. Then I suppose whites, blacks and Hispanics, it's about a tie. You know, natives too few to be counted or perhaps even below those last two groups the few times I've looked. So what what could the test be but racist against, you know, in order natives and Mexicans and blacks and whites and Asians? A simpler answer might be this could be the order in which those groups study for the test in number of hours. That That's almost certainly the answer. Or social class could play a major role. It's obviously not more than half of the scoring gap, but still, how do those groups finish in order of income? There are dozens of explanations here, but only one is acceptable. And getting to that modern definition of racism has meant completely redefining one of the core terms we all thought we understood. Uh, one last point about race, and then I wanted to move on to uh, economics and politics, which I know is, is more of right. alley professionally. Okay. Um, People who are very focused on racial issues, one of the things that I've always wondered, and I don't think this is as much Thomas Sowell as it is just me asking, why doesn't there seem to be 
a fondness for and promotion of intermarriage as a way of getting rid of this racial issue once and for all, because there's always going to be um, a tribalistic instinct in human beings. And I mean, I think they've done studies where they put people into two groups, the green group and the red group. And yeah, they yeah. found that people prefer people in their own group for no good reason, just that they're in the <laughs> same named group. So wouldn't it seem logical to try to just get rid of the races over time and, and just promote that? Why doesn't that seem to be happening? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think the reason a lot of people don't advocate this is that many of the people that intensely discuss race, whether you're talking about you know, perhaps the Ibram Kendi acolytes, although not the man himself, on the left, over to the alt-right on the far right, I mean, happen to be racist. I mean, that's, that's why they don't want to lose their blackness or whatever. I mean, the people that talk about the oppression inherent in the U.S. system, to quote Monty Python there a little, also never stop talking about being whatever they happen to be. To, to an extent, whereas a guy who's relatively proud of my black and Celtic background, who also just doesn't care, played sports with all kind of guys, I mean, it just gets incredibly boring and mundane. I mean, the, my black hair and how I expect you to deal with it. I mean, these, these are New York Times columns. But these people, now a surprising number of them are in interracial relationships. But why don't they openly advocate for it? Prejudice plays a big role. The idea that we don't want our beautiful people to vanish. Uh, one of the most controversial things I ever said, actually, I mean, I, I was debating Jared Taylor, who's generally considered to be the founder of the alt-right. And one of the points I made was, even if it is true that different groups vary in terms of different abilities, swimming, running, mathematics examination, and that this is partly genetic, that's not an argument against diversity. What you would do is set some reasonable physical and mental baseline and then admit to your country the people in the world that were the best at everything and let them either, you know, lightly segregate and continue to be the best at everything or intermarry and produce the highest overall performing people. You know, everyone would move whatever the geneticists say, 75% in the positive direction, re-each, you know, non-complex trait. That's science. So why why wouldn't you do this? And, you know, not only him, but some of the more woke uh, students in attendance looked absolutely shocked by this. Like, you want to destroy us eugenic. all. It sounds eugenic, right? Is that why? Well, no, I mean, it, eugenics is you, public sector eugenics are evil, but private sector eugenics. I mean, most people don't want to marry someone ugly and dumb. You know, so I, I don't I don't think there's any problem with this at all. It's just people dislike it because many people are bigots. Um, I do think that in practice, we're probably going to see something quite like this. Um, I mean, I looked at data on interracial marriages recently. About a quarter of all marriages are interracial, using the definition I would. And that's not even including marriages that are between, say, an Afghan and an Irishman which are technically within the same Caucasian race. That's not including cross-religious marriages. So, I mean, obviously, I think many Americans are going to move. I mean, we look relatively similar. I'll have lighter skin than I do. I mean, two guys with bald heads wearing modern business clothing. I mean, I think most Americans are going to move towards some sort of identifiable class-neutral, race-neutral point at some point in the future. Yeah. Uh, why don't people advocate for that? Because they like being what they are now. I wanted to uh, shift into a couple of other topics here. Let me just show you a little a slide that I prepared. Sure. So, okay, so here are is uh, a, a visual slide of the uh, all the books written by Thomas Sowell about race and ethnicity, and it's just an incredible, incredible accomplishment that he wrote on so many different aspects of these two topics, and that's what we've been talking about uh, for now. Um, some other areas that he's written on, here are the six books he wrote about education, uh, which is another passion of his. Here are the five books he wrote about political theory. And I, I imagine you've read all of these. Is that is that correct? Oh, yes. Yeah. And then here are the books he's written about economics. I think two of them or three of them were really bestsellers, Basic Economics, Applied Economics, and Economic Facts and Fallacies. Uh, but he's really... Um, you know, one of the things that always baffles me about uh, Thomas Sowell is that he's he's relatively unknown, despite the fact that his scholarship is so wide and so deep. I mean, is there anybody else, before I ask you my, my main question, is there anybody else who has this, this scholarly record that Thomas Sowell has when it comes to writing so deeply and so widely on so many subjects? Is there another person? 
No, I don't think so. I mean, I think you could argue uh, maybe Charles Murray a bit farther to the right, although he's far more controversial and I don't think has the same depth of expertise. No, no real insult to the man just compared to Thomas Sowell. You can maybe argue someone like William Julius Wilson or Orlando Patterson on the left. But no, I, I don't think there's anyone. Tom Sowell's written, I think, 63 books. And almost all of them were at either an academic level of quality. He also has something like 30 journal articles, or they were at that point of public intellectualism where the Times reviewed them. No, you, there aren't really a lot of people in that field, uh, in that space. The Again, a one-sentence answer as to the last question, why is Thomas Sowell um, almost ignored by a lot of the intelligentsia? Because he disagrees with them and is not rebuttable. I think that's that's the answer. I I'm sure I'll go on for a couple more sentences here and then we'll we'll flip back. But that that's something Thomas Jason Riley in the only biography ever written of Thomas Sowell Maverick uh, points this out. And he makes some of the same statistical points that I have where he says, you know, 93 percent in the media, 95 percent or whatever it is in academia of people disagree with Sowell. And a lot of the things he says, I mean, like the portions of a couple of books where he acknowledges racism, you know, unfairness in the market, but where he also points out that adjusting for variables like those we discussed closes 85 or 90 percent of a gap. A lot of this would make much of what's what said in mainstream social science useless. It would illustrate that people are debating endlessly about 10 percent of the variance. And so it's just ignored. People will make up comments. I often hear people say he doesn't go to the conferences. So he might have put out a couple of good public intellectual books or even journal articles, but we, he's not going to engage those with us. So he's not really part of the debate. Uh, you know, that would that would be valid enough, except that many of the books that are constantly cited, you know, Bell Hooks and Robin D'Angelo and so on are almost self-help New York Times bestsellers. So there, a lot of this is just ideological disagreement. So so the reason that Thomas Sowell is is. Un unknown and sort of obscure. Like if you ask most people on the street, the vast majority, probably close to 100% would say they've never even heard the name Thomas Sowell, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason you're saying is because his opponents just chose to ignore him rather than grapple with his ideas and debate him logically. Is that is that the, the, the one sentence answer? I, I think it is. I mean, I, I will say that this is this is more prevalent than you might think. I mean, I, I'm not necessarily asking for you know more hostile reviews, but I've written two books, uh, Hate Crime Hoax and Taboo, that were Amazon category bestsellers globally for a period of at least, say, a week apiece. Um, I mean, I happen to know they've sold now in the into the tens of thousands because I get, you know, the report telling me how much money I'm going to make. I mean, it's something to keep track of. You know, and I mean, the number of mainstream sort of non hit piece reviews of these books, I think, is two. And this is very common when you get into the black press. Like I mentioned, Third World and some of the things that have come out of there that are, you know, obviously angry with the USA, but quite empirical. I mean, you know, this is something you see with the, the quote unquote conservative ghetto. And I, I guarantee the number two book or the number three book on the New York Times bestseller list right now is either Ben Shapiro or Michael Knowles. They both dropped perfectly solid tomes in the past couple of weeks. I also guarantee those books will never be reviewed in that newspaper. So you see this across ethnic lines. You see this across party lines. When someone says something smart that you disagree with, there's very often a tendency to do what in my old neighborhood we would have called not giving them any shine and just ignore the work that they've produced. And that has an effect. You know, taboo sold, you know, X, whatever it did. I'm dislike the sort of boasting online. But I mean, like, would it have sold 10 times as many books if the New York Times reviewed it or if, you know, sure. MSNBC, CNN had platformed it as well as Fox? Like, yeah, of course. So what you very often see is an element of selection. This gets into the whole publisher v. platform debate with social media and with more than a few contemporary media platforms. But I mean, when the 1619 Project wins a Pulitzer Prize, for example, like, you know, no hate for NHJ, not even really any professional jealousy there. But was that was that the best piece of social science to come out in writing and the year in question? Was it the best piece of magazine journalism? I mean, I think almost everyone has an opinion that's not hell yes. But it, it was, you know, the best that fit the parameters, the best pro-black left wing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, thing that fit that bill. 
Um, in contrast, you're never going to see Glenn Lowry, Larry Elder, John McWhorter, Jason Riley, these very significant people. I mean, Larry is the least scholarly of the lot, and he's running for governor. You know, you're never going to see that same sort of attention paid to them. And we all know it, and we all know why. And so Tom Sowell has definitely been subjected to this same sort of thing. Speaking of Larry Elder, you know, he he's tweeting out Thomas Sowell quotes on an almost daily basis, which I find really exciting, really exciting, because if he becomes governor of California, I think we can expect that to continue. And then I can I think we can expect, you know, hundreds of thousands more Thomas Sowell books to be read if he can if he has that bully pulpit and that platform to promote Thomas Sowell's ideas. Oh, yeah. So speaking of, okay, so I wanted to show uh, two quotes about economics and political theory that sort of tie in with each other. Okay, the first quote is one of his most famous economic uh, quotes. The first lesson of economics is scarcity. There is never enough of anything to satisfy all those who want it. The first lesson of politics is to disregard the first lesson of economics. Okay, so hold your thought on that for a minute. And let me switch to the second quote. And this is going to be really up your alley, I think. Quote, such are the ways of politics where the crusade of the hour often blocks out everything else, at least until another crusade comes along and takes over the same monopoly of our minds. Thomas Sowell. So, what I want to uh, ask you about is this issue of crusades, which I find a very, very powerful way to look at social phenomenon, that people seem to have a love of and a need for crusading for something, that it somehow gives meaning to their lives. Uh, you know, give us your thoughts on that whole crusade issue. Well, first, I, th I think Sol does a very good job there of breaking down the distinction between economics and politics. So economics is just reality. There's X amount of, you know, widgets in an ecosystem and we can divide the widgets up in certain ways. The rich man can get a little more than the poor man or we can separate them equally, but the number of widgets is fixed. Then there's politics where you want to begin by imagining an infinite number of widgets and where you want to come up with beautiful sounding theories about how to distribute these widgets to your preferred block of the population, blacks or poor whites or Christians or whatever else. So the reality of economics often conflicts with the bias and nonsense of politics. So I think he said that pretty well. The, the crusading in politics is one way of rallying people, again, regardless of whether or not this is consistent with the hard economic realities that we are, that exist at the same time. People tend to want things to believe in. One of the things about this is that there seem to be an inexhaustible thing or supply of things that silly people can choose to believe in. So this is this is actually a piece of advice I would give to conservatives and to traditional liberals who are, if anything, more under attack right now. When it comes to these these campaigns from what I think of as the woke left. The, the far right is just as nuts, but doesn't have the same amount of power. So I'll, I'll can, can find that to these guys. What a lot of people think is, well, we can make a deal with them. Um, so if someone is proposing that the N-word, let's call it, and I'm a black guy, nigger, nigga, these be totally banned from the public sector, that Huck Finn be taken off the shelves, um, that whites think twice before listening to rap music, some of the things that are being said today. There's a tendency on the part of many people to say, well, that's idiotic, but I don't like the legacy of racism. Maybe we can meet them in the middle. We can compromise on this or I can just do this. What people don't understand is that the crusade is generally not about the focus of the crusade itself. The actual crusaders took hundreds of small cities in a row by just declaring each one to be the step need closer to the holy land that they needed to get, right? Mm -hmm. The crusade is not about any particular point along the march or along the path. It's about pursuing a set of goals, like getting unity out of a particular group, chasing utopia, something like that. So it's never going to stop. If you actually agree to remove all incidences of the N-word from the popular press, what's going to happen is simply that another word is going to be redefined as penultimately offensive. We're seeing this now, actually. It's a retarded and midget, right? Like, I mean, so if once the battle has been won, the, the people behind it will then say, and this is, this is just a silly one about the content of books, but they will then say, well, 
the word retard still appears from, you know, everywhere from high school sports autobiographies to music manuals. Now we fight this and we keep our coalition together. And, you know, the right does this, too, with abortion and so on. There's always some sort of procedure. It, that's the crusade exists to unify people and to be the crusade that distracts folks from reality, not to be resolved. So there's an incredible tendency in politics toward crusading. Yes, Saul said that well. I mean, we could even get to the point where you can't say the phrase, the N-word anymore. I could see that as being the logical consequence of that crusading. <laughs> Everyone knows what it is. Everyone knows what you mean. Yeah, it's just, That word with one letter that we can no longer say. <laughs> yeah, saying my nigga at a basketball game has now become like saying Voldemort's first and last name. The point of this, though, is that it's just all bullshit. Like, I, excuse the language, I don't want to just do a lot of cursing and shouting on the pod, but like... When I, if I were to honestly ask a group of guys that I play basketball with, how many of you have said nigga, white boy to a Caucasian competitor or motherfucker during this game? Like everyone, we kind of sheepishly raise their hand and we go back to playing basketball. So what you're doing with these endless crusades is taking things that aren't wrong, that are perfectly common. I mean, these redefinitions like racism is anything where all groups don't finish equally. You know, if you notice that 18-year-old junior college or high school varsity cheerleaders look fairly attractive, you're a pedophile. If you have sex with someone on a second date after a bottle of red wine, you're a rapist. What you're doing is taking things that are not going to stop ever. They're just normal behavior and redefining them as some kind of perversion or evil so you can keep your crusading coalition together. Everyone at some level knows what this is. If you add, like the basketball example I just used, if you asked a bunch of feminist female friends, like, yeah, on a first or second date, how many of you have had five drinks and hooked up with a guy? Again, it would be 99%. So when you define the normal as abnormal or evil, when you define racism as black guys winning races or Asians doing well on math tests or something like that, you have the permanent crusade because those things probably aren't going to stop. And you're definitely not going to take the steps to stop them. Like you're not going to train white jocks to be better athletically if you're coming from this chunk of the left. It's just the thing is out there. And as long as the thing is out there, we need communism or whatever the proposed solution is. That's the goal of these endless end games. One of Sowell's big concepts is the idea that solutions entail trade-offs. Oh, yes. And a lot of the problems that the left is pointing to that they're trying to solve by regulating speech and regulating behavior, you know, otherwise normal behavior, historically speaking, is that it's going to cause other problems, that there are going to be trade-offs. And for example, one of the trade-offs that I see in the Me Too movement is okay. a disturbed relationship between men and women that is getting just worse. And, you know, as long as people are aware that there's that trade-off, that's fair. But a lot of times they proceed as if there's no trade-off at all. Yeah, I think the obvious example, even more controversially, is COVID. I mean, so COVID-19, obviously. So first, just for those that might not know what you or I are talking about, although I would suspect the podcast between the two of us is going to have a pretty specific wonk audience that knows who Thomas Sowell is. But Sowell is one of a couple of great economists to make this point that there aren't any solutions, there are only trade-offs. Uh, the example he uses, and I think basic economics, is that in the early 1970s, a baby was thrown across the cockpit of a plane by turbulence in the sky. Terrible situation. The kid was killed, so forth. But no, the response to that was to tighten up airport security, make all the bulkhead doors one-way locking. Everyone has to wear a seatbelt. There were five or six different provisions that were put in place. And Seoul calculates that these cost something like a billion dollars, which isn't an enormous amount of money. But if that made, say, 10,000 families travel by car rather than by plane, it probably killed 500 people over the period of time that's being discussed. So there, there's no solution. You didn't solve the problem of kids being killed by airplanes because it wasn't a problem. It wasn't an epidemic national issue, just blood and bones all over the cockpit every time you got on a plane. You dealt with the tragic loss of this one kid by implementing a policy that is going to make all working class families take the vehicle. And so you killed more people. It sounds terrible to put it that way, but we all know at some level that's true. And this is true across a whole range of situations. Like, I, I don't actually think the USA responded as badly to COVID as many people think. I think Trump and Biden, this is one thing where neither man screwed up dramatically. You have to deal with 50 state governors. We have federalist policies here. We also have a hell of a lot more ports than they do in New Zealand. 
Like I've been a leader, at least at the local level. I mean, for people to say some of this nonsense at any rate, I think we handled COVID well enough. But I think when you look at some of the U.S. states and when you look at countries like Australia, you are seeing an attempt to disregard trade-off policy in favor of solutions. Right. So Australia, after the vaccine is in place, and I'm a strong advocate of vaccination, by the way, uh, science is real, whether you're on the right or the left. But Australia, after the vaccinations in place, after most seniors are vaxxed, when they're facing a max of maybe a thousand deaths, elder senior deaths, mostly still locked down NSW, New South Wales, which if I recall correctly is where Sydney is for a month or more in reaction to what was it, 10, 12 fatal cases of COVID. You might correct me. That strikes me as an insane overreaction. What you're saying is we're going to keep a city that's near New York sized and the other two, three million people in this province indoors. They have a nine o'clock p.m. curfew for a month to prevent a five percent increase in the natural death rate. We all want to prevent death. I would certainly give people the option of going to some sort of secured location or getting a fitted in 95 from the government. I would try to protect seniors. But if people say I'm willing to live, I'm willing to accept this risk, you can't shove them all inside for a 10th of a year to prevent one death per 1,000 or whatever people. That, that's not how that works. And we've seen these kind of decisions made repeatedly. Um, I, I don't wanna exaggerate this. This turned out to only be in two provinces. I'll probably take it down on Twitter. But in Australia, they killed a bunch of the shelter dogs. Like the idea was that people might come to the shelters in at least two large provincial locations and adopt them, thus potentially spreading COVID from the dogs or whatever. So as I understand, they shot them. Like just the most graphic dystopian nonsense imaginable because they're unwilling to make this trade-off of, yes, you get to go outside and own a dog, but you're accepting a one in a thousand risk of death. You're accepting a one in a hundred risk of death every year you're alive. So, I mean, it's just, I, I do think more people could be well-served to read their soul. In your, in your book, Taboo, in chapter one, you say taboo, obvious fact number one, the police are not murdering black people. And then you go into why that statistically is just not the case. Um, the whole country has been in a fever that this is the case. They've been ignoring your chapter one. And the trade-off that, you know, the, the solution has been to get the police to back off. Stay in your car. Don't get out. Don't proactively police. Don't pull people over. I've noticed in Los Angeles, for example, I've, I used to get pulled over for running a stop sign, you know, a few times. Now you never even see the police out. It's just a completely different enforcement uh, zone. And that must be costing thousands and thousands of lives. So to save a dozen, we're sacrificing thousands. Is that is that accurate? It's absolutely accurate. There's actually a paper about this. I, I like to focus during an interview, so I'm not I'm not going to pull it up. But anyone anyone who's interested, this was covered. Uh, Vice, I think, ran a piece on it, and they actually gave pretty fair coverage to both sides of the paper. Um, just look up police shooting deaths down after Black Lives Matter, and you'll find the full thing. There's there's a second part of this paper, but. A group of talented researchers looked at what happened after major Black Lives Matter marches and then sort of orders mandating new police behavior in a couple of major cities. And what they found was absolutely fascinating. They found that the number of black people shot by police, and that poor whites as well, so on Hispanics, I guess, you know, non-poor people that were out robbing stores too. But the number of people shot by police dropped by a figure that would be the equivalent of 300 nationally. Okay. I read this and I was like, maybe I, maybe I was in the wrong on this issue. But the flip side of the paper is that the number of young men or young black men, as before, I'm a bit confused about which it is without any criticism of either group, but the number of people shot by the police, or the number of people that just got shot, sorry, increased by 6,000. Like the number of people in those cities that got shot by other citizens because the police pulled back was on the order of 6K. It was like three to 6,000. So bit of a bumbling intro there, but I, I think this is what everyone would have predicted, that if you absolutely mandate that the police remain confined to their cars, make stops only when two officers witness a hand transfer, whatever, there will be fewer people engaged in violent encounters with the police and thus fewer police shooting. However, probably 10 times as many young brothers and others will just be killed by other people in the gang scene, angry spouse, so on. And that's, that's exactly what we saw. 
So, you know, yeah, I, you know, I think the defund, right. the defund the police movement is actually the logical extension of the solutions without trade-offs exactly. mentality, which is like we could eliminate all people killed by the police if we simply eliminate <laughs> the police, right? Yeah, I mean, so and then, I mean, to just take the obvious lob pass toward the hoop, then you see murder triple. And so you've saved a thousand lives, but you've killed 40,000 people. I mean, yes, that that is an absolute excellent summary of what understanding trade-offs as solutions would imply. So when you look at a problem as a leader, it's generally a good idea not to look at that problem in isolation. If you're talking about Me Too, for example, say not enough women feel they have mentors. Why not assign the company's most aggressive male executives to them as mentors? I actually would favor that in some circumstances, but there's got to be an element of come on where you look at that and you see what the possible downsides of that would be because things move in cycles. You're not looking. This is the problem with sports analogies in business or war, by the way. In sports, you're going against one team on a field of a predetermined length and distance. And if you beat the team, you win the game. In business, much less military conflict, if you do that, take that same sort of simplistic solutions focused approach, everyone else that's involved kicks your ass. I mean, you know, your number two competitor swoops in from the side and takes all your clients or the other tribe you're fighting attacks you and kills your fighters. I mean, so in this particular case, solutions rarely exist outside of a network of potentialities that you need to look at. Soul is essentially correct. Almost every situation you can imagine involves significant trade-offs. Okay, well, we're coming to the end of our time, and I just have one more question for you, you know, specifically to Thomas Sowell. Do you, you assign Thomas Sowell to your students? Uh, are there other professors at your university who do? Where, where does he stand in, in, in the university today? I certainly do when it's relevant in, for example, a political theory class. Uh, even at Kentucky State, a Southern, uh, historically Black, but I'd say politically centrist college, I can't imagine I know another professor that assigns Thomas Sowell. And this actually, I think, is part of the issue. I mean, when you talk about why Seoul is a bit unknown, the obvious answer there, we've already gone through the exact figures, but, you know, are 95% of journalists and academics lean in a direction opposite to his. So that minimizes his impact. One thing I will say about this that I found pretty significant that I've always kept in mind is that when I introduce heterodox thought to my students, whether that's Tom Sowell and Glenn Lowry or whether that's the old beautiful Greek dialogues you're not really supposed to read anymore, what's the, what's the nature of beauty, so on. Many students are absolutely baffled to have heard the other half of the argument for the first time. They're not necessarily going to move away from conventional liberalism, certainly at 20 when you're still primarily focused on you know, getting laid and relaxing and boosting your Frisbee skills and having a few drinks after school. But they're not going to necessarily move away from a well-argued conventional liberalism, but it astonishes them to see that they have never heard the arguments for ultimate truth or black conservatism or, you know, fiscal stability or a hundred other things where there obviously is a counterpoint ever before. So I'll, I'll probably keep assigning soul as long as this is the case, but the reason it's the case is that not many people assign soul. I mean, you really are often in an ideological eco chamber. I love my colleagues. I love higher education. But again, imagine, imagine how these institutions would be viewed if 95% of people were on the hard political right. You know, who is the equivalent figure of the Thomas Sowell in reverse that would be left out there? I would personally say Bizarro Soul would probably be someone like uh, William Julius Wilson, but we'll never know. Okay. On that note, I want to thank you very much for joining us for the podcast. All right. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Thanks, Will.